0: Please be seated. I invite you to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 in your Bibles. In the year of our Lord, 1747, Lord George Littleton, a member of the English Parliament, wrote a letter to his eminent friend, Mr. Gilbert West, to see if old Gill might be up to having a little fun. Both of these esteemed scholars believed that the Bible was a fraud, and they conspired to prove it together. So Gilbert West chose to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, thinking that would certainly deliver a crucial blow to the faith. And Lord Littleton elected to debunk the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Kind of interesting, of all things, to aim at. He aims at the conversion of Paul, believing that if he can disprove this, he has disproven Christianity, dealing a fatal blow. Both men, wrote C.H. Spurgeon sometime later, quote, sat down to their respective tasks full of prejudice and a contempt for Christianity. Later that year, Littleton and West met together, ostensibly to gloat in their intellectual triumph over the Christian faith. But as these men shared their discoveries, both, both men confessed to one another. That through their studies, they had come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had conquered their unbelieving hearts. Gilbert West reported his findings in the book, Observations on the Resurrection of Christ. Lord Littleton's findings were published in an essay entitled, Observations on the Conversion of St. Paul. And Littleton concludes in that essay, The Conversion... An apostleship of St. Paul, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be divine revelation. We might quibble with that a bit, perhaps, and discuss that on some level. But for this man, it convinced him. Considering the conversion of Paul, this man came to salvation in Christ. When one considers, indeed, analyzes Saul's standing as a Pharisee, a rising star within Jerusalem, the power of his intellect, the absence of any evidence of psychotic weakness, the singular devotion and zeal with which he henceforward served Jesus, whom he once persecuted, dying in that service. One has simply permitted no other rational explanation but that Jesus Christ captured the soul of Saul of Tarsus. Everyone knew where he was heading. And everyone knew that he made a 180 degree turn. And the only explanation was Jesus. Indeed, the history of Saul's conversion is one of the great triumphs of grace. Every believer is a triumph of grace. If Jesus Christ has saved you, It took no less power than it took to rescue Saul of Tarsus. It's all a work of his grace, a triumph of his grace. Yet there are those who are chosen for unique service. We have not all been selected to be an apostle. None of us has been selected to be an apostle. Saul of Tarsus was. He was a unique man. And under unprecedented circumstances, we as the people of God should celebrate such triumphs as this. It is indeed a part of who we are. It's part of our DNA as Christians. This history of Saul's conversion... We read of it again in Acts 9, in verse 1, just to review. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, a week's journey... in another account, seeing the light, but not discerning Jesus. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He's ministered to by Ananias, who comes and in the authority of Christ speaks to him, restores his sight. In verse 18, this one who had come to Damascus to persecute Christians is baptized. He identifies with Christ in the waters of baptism. And verse 19 takes food, is strengthened, and for some days stays with the disciples at Damascus, staying in the home of one by the name of Judas. We know nothing else of him on the street called Straight and is there certainly meditating and praying and seeking the face of Christ in his blindness. Now in what follows here at verse 20 and following through down to verse 30 we have a demonstration of Saul's conversion. With razor-sharp mind, combining with a regenerate spiritual zeal, he now enters upon a radically redirected life path in order to serve the Savior, the one that he had so aggressively opposed. The remainder of chapter 9, down through verse 30 at least, Luke records the early ministry of Saul, primarily to demonstrate the legitimacy of his conversion to Christ. We need to ask why these events are here. And certainly they are part of our, as I said, our Christian DNA. They're our history. They're who we are. And we're to understand this history and rejoice in it and celebrate in the grace of God demonstrated to Saul of Tarsus. But I think there's more here. I think that Luke is writing in order to demonstrate that Saul is indeed converted. Let me explain to you how much, if we could put it that way, He has been radically transformed, and he is now a servant of Christ. So we see him in the first section here, down through verse 25, serving as Christ's witness in Damascus, and then we will pick up from there in verse 26 and see him serving as Christ's witness in Jerusalem. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, this name of Jesus? And has he not come here to Damascus for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests at Jerusalem? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Now we stop here and ask, how does Saul pull this off? Immediately proclaiming Jesus, preaching convincingly that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, the Messiah. Well, as we say often, don't try this at home. It's really not a very good idea for a brand new convert to come to such a situation as a synagogue and to engage in evangelism. But Saul is unique, isn't he? Let's think of it. Saul was a Pharisee trained at the feet of one of the most eminent rabbis in Israel, Gamaliel. Saul then had a stellar knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures and their prophetic witness concerning the Messiah. If you had sat down with Saul of Tarsus and said, explain how the Hebrew Scriptures point to Messiah, he could give you a lecture for hours right there. Now Saul adamantly opposed the notion that Jesus was that Messiah. But when Jesus dramatically set Saul straight on the road leading to Damascus, it would not have taken Saul any longer than his three days of blindness in Judas' house to reboot his theology. Saul had reasoned that Jesus could not be Messiah, for, for one instance, the Messiah cannot be condemned. The law reveals, God's Word teaches, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. So Saul was livid to hear Christians proclaiming otherwise. That the Messiah of God, the Son of God, would be one that God would permit to be crucified, hung on a tree, cursed. Utter nonsense. We can imagine... Saul, in his blindness, as he knows now that Christ is the risen Savior, thinking through passages such as, just for instance, Isaiah 53, which was considered earlier with the Ethiopian eunuch. Think of it. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. Ah, there it is. Wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. So Paul would write eventually as his theology deepened, as he wrote it out, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Indeed, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed, but not for his sins, for ours as our substitute. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham. How does that come to the Gentiles? Galatians 3 and verse 8, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Paul will eventually write, And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham by saying, Genesis 12, In you shall all nations be blessed. That's the gospel beforehand. Before Christ dies and rises. Saul had this matter in hand. He had enough biblical knowledge... To once Christ confronts him, to rework it quickly in the dark over three days period and to immediately begin to preach Christ crucified. What an amazing turnaround. I'd say a second thing here, very possibly, that Saul most likely heard Stephen's speech in Acts 7. He stood there as the man was stoned to death, and we would assume that he probably heard the content of his message. But certainly there were other Christians, as he was arresting them and coming to discern what their beliefs were, where he was hearing about this Jesus, the Messiah. Very likely he heard from the mouth of Stephen, or certainly from other Christians, this concept that the final revelation of God to whom the law, the temple, and the promised land pointed was Jesus Christ. In Acts 26 and verse 14, we might find further indication where we read that as he reports the words of Christ, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus also said there, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That sharp point held behind livestock as they kick backwards would keep them moving forward. This is what Saul was doing. Saul's venomous attack against Christianity emanated from a reasoned, well-thought-out resistance to Christianity's message. On some level, we don't know all of the information that he has received, but Saul of Tarsus is resisting the conviction of the Spirit. He's kicking against the goads. Saul was not minded like Gamaliel to sit back and see how this thing plays out. Saul was going to crush this rebellion against God. He hated Christianity, and there's nothing else that explains the vehemence with which he strives to stamp it out. Other than he knew it. He knew the claims of Christ, or we might say he knew Him. Saul did not at first know the identity of the voice that spoke to him, but when Jesus said, I am Jesus, Saul of Tarsus didn't say, who? He knew who Jesus was. He knew the claims of Jesus. He knew essentially what Christians were saying about Jesus. And now, he had been completely reworked. So here's Paul having come to Damascus to crush the cause of Christ, now proclaiming Him to be the divine Messiah immediately. He will learn much more theology. In due course, He has the matter, however, in hand, right out of the gate, and He preaches. And He amazes people, verse 21. They were repeatedly astounded, the Greek text indicates. This dramatic change of course and Saul, verse 22, was repeatedly growing in his apologetic abilities and repeatedly confounding the Jews with that teaching. These types of verbs are used in the original language, that this is a repeating action. He's growing in his abilities. He's growing as he confounds the Jews who are listening to him. And what's he doing? He is proving that Jesus was the Christ. That is, that word proving is indicating that Saul is marshalling facts to prove his case that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. The Jews frequenting the Damascus synagogue simply cannot refute what he is teaching from the Scriptures. Now we could cynically say, well, there was no one that was going to match him wit for wit on any level, and certainly that there might be some truth in that. But if this is a direct heresy, and if there is an argument to it, someone in these synagogues, they too are schooled in the Hebrew Scriptures, someone would have an answer for him. But they're dumbfounded. They're astonished. There's no answer. He proves rationally, objectively, drawing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And he's silencing the synagogues. And it says to us that Christianity is indeed a thoroughly rational, objective religion. Yet, and we'll say more on this later, it is, of course, a faith no one can attain apart from the intervention of God. You will not get there by reason alone. 1 Corinthians 1. Now, we read in verse 23 that he is there in Damascus for many days. When many days had passed, he runs into trouble. But let's stop there for a moment. These many days, most conservative scholars would say that this connects to a three-year period in Saul's preparation. Galatians chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there, I'll read from Galatians 1 verses 11 and following. Galatians 1, 11 and following, where we have another historical insert here by the Apostle himself. Galatians 1 and verse 11, "...for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." Now that's a key phrase. There was a revelation of Jesus Christ that taught him his understanding of the gospel. 4, verse 13, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, from my mother's womb and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Where was He saved? Damascus, on His way there. Then He goes away into Arabia. Damascus is kind of right on the edge of Arabia. He moves away from there and after a three-year period of time returns to Damascus. Now, since Luke does not emphasize this journey into Arabia, I don't want to spend much time on it here, but we need to say one thing about it. Suffice it to say, Saul preached Christ with uncanny power upon his conversion. And yet... God deemed it necessary for Paul to be further trained for some three years in the desert. He could walk into the synagogues and shut every mouth. He was that successful. And how would the church market such a successful man today? They'd be booking him for speaking engagements as fast as they could possibly get out their pens and their paper. What does God do with Saul of Tarsus? You're going to go away with Jesus for three years. Just like the apostles, he spends three years with Christ through Revelations in the desert near Damascus, but in Arabia. We don't know what he was doing there or where he was or how that all worked, but he is putting together his theology. He's deepening in the seminary of Arabia. What is he learning? Romans sixteen twenty five, Ephesians chapter three and verse three, and other passages such as this, Jesus revealed the truth, the mystery that Jews and Gentiles would be united in the body of Christ. Now, the Old Testament scriptures gave indications this way, but how this was to be understood and to work, and the whole concept of union with Christ, Jew and Gentile in the one body, all of this needed to be fleshed out for the apostle so that he could transfer it. To the church, this truth, like the other apostles, he spent these three years with Jesus and emerged from the desert now with far greater capacities. He had not only learned the Old Testament scriptures in Jerusalem, now he had learned the truth of salvation from Christ himself through revelation. And when he comes back to Damascus, verse 23, the Jews are there plotting to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. 2 Corinthians 11 implies that the Nebatian king Aretas had a governor serving in Damascus. And it's possible that the Jews conspired with him, much like the Jews conspired with Pontius Pilate in the death of Jesus. We don't know the circumstances here, but somehow Jews and the governing official here in Damascus worked together to say, this man's got to die. They're by the city gate. I mean, it's the only way you can get in and out of a city, right? Disciples are racking their minds and thinking, and the plot becoming known to Saul that they're watching the gates. His disciples, verse 25, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Brief lesson on divine providence here. What had God said to him? You are going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. How do you deal with that? Paul puff out his chest, put a target on his back, walk to the city gate and go, just try to take me out. Jesus has given me his word. I'm going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. I'm invincible. He was invincible. But how does God work? He works through human means, largely. And these guys sit there in this little apartment up on the wall of Damascus and say, well, how do we get him out of here? High up on the city walls were often little apartments that were built into the wall, and they have a little slit, not a glass window, but a little slit in the wall. You could look down through there and see the enemy, and it also served to shoot arrows down through there. In these little apartments, space was of the essence. They were tiny. And so it was common for people to get a rope and a big basket and put stuff in the basket, kind of like a hanging closet outside your apartment. And they would just kind of let the rope down a little ways. It couldn't be stolen that way. It was out from underfoot, and they were able then to store food in there and clothes in there, whatever they would choose. Now well, somebody gets the idea, and they knew the Old Testament Scriptures, so this uh, little escape had been practiced before, you'll remember. And, I mean, think of it. There he is in this basket, kind of like a clothes hamper. And they're slowly letting him down outside the wall that he can escape under the cover of night. Now, it sounds like a great thriller, doesn't it? This basket silently, quietly, inching its way down the wall and it hits the ground and out comes Saul and away he runs into the night toward Jerusalem. But you know... The reality is, this was utterly humiliating. Remember the Saul that came to Damascus? He came to Damascus as a big man. This was Saul of Tarsus, the one who had studied under Gamaliel. He comes with soldiers. He comes with a letter from the high priest in Jerusalem. And all of Damascus is to fear this big Saul. He leaves the city under the cover of night, hiding in a clothes hamper. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we find this reality. He uses this example to describe his humiliating weakness. He's a Jewish scholar. He's a Roman citizen. He's a wealthy Hellenist. He's a rising star in Jerusalem. You're not supposed to leave town this way. What is it that motivates Saul of Tarsus? He is going to live another day to proclaim the Gospel. It's not pride that gets in his way here. He has a job to do and he escapes to Jerusalem. And he's learning that preaching the Gospel is not going to be a safe enterprise. At this point, he makes that one week journey back, and we see him serving then as Christ's witness in Damascus, and now, secondly, serving as Christ's witness in Jerusalem. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Again, the Greek verbs are instructive here. He attempted is a verb indicating that there was a repetitive attempts, which were matched by repetitive fear. A recurring fear on the part of those who were disciples. Now remember, God spoke directly to Ananias in Damascus, explaining that Saul was a genuine believer and he could be trusted. But three years have passed, and the disciples in Jerusalem have received no such divine message, nor had they received any solid report of Saul's preaching in Damascus. But Saul's application then for membership in the Jerusalem church gets a rather chilly reception. He's anxious to join the community. Note that. These are his brothers and sisters. He gets there having suffered all that he's suffered having labored courageously and faithfully in Damascus, and he gets here to Jerusalem, and nobody really wants to talk to him. If the Apostle Paul was going to visit our church and speak here, we would not worship him as a god, we would know he was a sinner, but we would revere him. We would thank God for this man and for what God did with him and through him. Here's this same man going into Jerusalem, nobody wants to talk to him. So if you want to go back in time somewhere, this would be a good spot. (laughs) You could have a long conversation with Saul of Tarsus because there was nobody that wanted to talk to him. You know, there's an interesting reality that shows itself at this point. For the rest of his days, Saul's heart will be filled with zealous love for the followers of Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem and he wants to find the brothers and sisters in Christ. He does not go to Jerusalem and say, fine, you don't have any time for me? I will start sauloftarsus.com and I'll do my own deal here. He wants to be with them. And you know it's interesting that the rest of his days he will encounter Christians who do not like him and refuse to welcome him. Christians. No matter how hard and faithfully a Christian servant labors in preaching, some are not going to approve. Not only unbelievers, but some Christians are just not going to approve. And no matter how loving and zealous a Christian servant is, some will oppose and that will always be the story when it comes to the Apostle Paul. There will always be resistance. When you are serving the cause of Christ, unbelievers are going to shoot for you, and even many believers aren't going to necessarily like what you're doing. He was always facing opposition. It's all natural reaction, of course. Clueless, but it's natural reaction. I mean, you would understand why they'd be afraid of him. It just did not seem to dawn on many of these disciples that perhaps they should welcome Saul because God had welcomed Saul. Well, it did dawn on one man. Verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He asked, why does Barnabas get the picture? All we know is that Barnabas isn't really his name, right? It's Joseph. It's his nickname. He's the son of encouragement, the son of comfort, the son of encouragement, which means that he was a man who loved people. And people who love other people take risks, and they become vulnerable for the good of others. And that is precisely what Barnabas does with Saul here. Fear motivates the Jerusalem believers' approach to Saul, so they avoid him. Barnabas was motivated by love, and so he took the risk of entrapment to find out if this Saul was for real, and a deep bond was formed. Barnabas talks to Saul. Then he says, listen, let's forget all of these other believers. Let me take you right to the apostles, and let's share your testimony with them. He secures audience with them, as Galatians 1 indicates. Saul sat down with Peter for 15 days. Over a period of 15 days, they met with one another. Again, you want to go back in time somewhere, would that ever be a great spot to be sitting at that table? And hearing as they put their theology together and understood it, shared accounts and talked about Christ. He met James there, but now he was in. As verse 28 indicates, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. Meaning that he had free access now, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He continues to minister the gospel. Now on the team, a member in full standing, received by the believers. Verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. There's his evangelistic endeavors. But they were seeking to kill him. Saul is, of course, a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus. So it would be fitting that he attended Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem and he encounters the very same response that the Hellenist Stephen faced there in Jerusalem. Chapter 6 and verse 9. And when the brothers learned this, that a plot was on his life, that there was a price on his head, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. As you... You see on the map, there was a journey up to Caesarea, which was a major port city. There's very little doubt that he would have gone from there all the way up to Tarsus by ship. Works his way up there to his hometown. Remember what Jesus said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. A stoning in which he was left for dead multiple beatings to an inch of his life, imprisonments, a riot, several shipwrecks, hunger, thirst, dangerous exposure to cold, dangerous exposure to thieves and robbers, and ultimately martyrdom. Saul was chosen by Christ to serve his cause. That Jesus put him in the Arabian desert for three years. And now at this point, he sends him north to Tarsus where Saul remains in anonymity for about 10 years. I'm sure that he was serving Christ in that region during that time. We do not know exactly what happened. There are some indications of persecution that are listed in his writings that are not found in the book of Acts. Perhaps some of those things took place here during this period. I think what we do know about Saul and the pattern that he's already established is he wasn't sitting on his hands or taking a vacation for ten years. But he was out of the loop. And he would remain out of the loop until God needed him. But he had and was preparing his apostle to the Gentiles. And this brings then to close in the text, the second track. Remember back in chapter 6 and verse 7, we came to this conclusive statement that brings the first track of approximately five years to close. Chapter 6 and verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Then back to 9 and verse 31, we have now here the end of the second track. So So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So indicates a connection between the peace of the church and the conversion of Saul. With Saul out of the way, there was relative peace. It doesn't mean there was no opposition. But in general terms, the intense persecution under Saul waned. And? So the word spreads. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The God-directed, Spirit-empowered mission continued forward. The gospel was continuing to conquer hearts. This is helpful. A helpful section to us historically. It helps us to discern our roots, to know that we're here today because of what God has done through the Apostle Paul, through Saul of Tarsus. But I think the point of this section is not only that, to give us our historical moorings here, but I think it's also to demonstrate the genuineness of Saul's conversion, that Christ had truly rescued this man and given him life. Not merely that we, like Lord Littleton, might rationally prove Christianity's truth, but to bear witness to the absolute power and the grand purposes of Jesus to save whomever He chooses. Reaching down against all expectations, Jesus conquers the heart of the most Jewish of Jewish men in order that through this Jewish man the proclamation of the gospel might spread to the Gentiles, would put down these deep roots of advancement. We're looking at our roots here. We are reminded in this example of Saul and in the genuineness of his conversion that Christianity is a holy, rational faith. It is a faith one can strive to prove through reason. But it is also a transforming power that can only be received through God-initiated spiritual transformation. It is both together. It is not merely an existential experience. It is not merely intellectual, philosophical rationality. The genuine conversion to Christ couples these two ideas. To be saved, we must believe objective, historical facts Jesus really lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And I think if we don't believe that these things took place historically, we understand them as factual event, we cannot be saved. 1 Corinthians 15 would make that f- very clear to us. Paul read earlier, the other Paul, our Paul, earlier. Did you hear it? Oprah Winfrey's theology? Did you hear that? God isn't something to believe. I'd agree with that, he's someone to believe. But she's saying he's not something to believe. God just is. God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. And in fact, if your religion is a believing experience, if God for you is still about a belief, then it's not truly God. I'm going to believe Jesus Christ on this one. I'm going to believe the Apostle Paul on this one. You must believe specific, historic facts, and you must believe the revelation of the meaning of those facts, or you cannot be saved. Salvation is an objective truth that has been revealed to us in Christ. But let me stress again, you also cannot be saved by simply knowing those facts. You must be born again. Though I would differ with Oprah Winfrey on the kind of experience that is necessary, I would certainly agree that there must be an experience. There is a born again, spirit, redemptive event that must take place in our lives. A work of God that He alone can do. You cannot contribute to it any more than you can contribute to your own physical birth. Though in his grace you do respond to that message. But it is God who saves us. We don't save ourselves. We respond to the truth objectively, but it is he who must save. We see both of those in Saul, don't we? He is confounding people by marshaling facts and proving that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe. Yet does he stand there as one who says, I've made this great intellectual journey. Now he's saying, I was captured by Christ. I was born again. And that loops over the next idea here, and that is that genuine conversion evidences itself in these common realities. I don't think this text is put here for us to make such a list as such, but we see it here, don't we? We see in genuine conversion there is a sense that God in His unmeasured grace chooses to initiate salvation by capturing the soul of a sinner. As Ephesians 2 says, when we stand before God, no one will boast. We will all say, amazing grace, forever and ever. We see, secondly, repentance. That there will be, in genuine conversion, this understanding of the truth, matched by the regenerate power of Christ. There will be a turn from the way that we think. There will be a new life orientation. We will be changed. We see, thirdly, that there will be a Christ-centered life. There will be an allegiance to Jesus that, that flows from this conversion. There will be, fourthly, an interest in the conversion of the lost that demonstrates a willingness to sacrifice for that cause, to give, and indeed, amidst all of our fear, to demonstrate at times courage to speak in the name of Christ. I have serious concerns about that Christian who has never had any desire to point someone else to Jesus. I understand fear. I understand inability. I understand sometimes even lack of opportunity. Those things are things we must grapple with. But the Christian who doesn't have a sense that I want to proclaim Christ to unbelievers, you have to wonder if Jesus has really captured their heart. Maybe they're just all on the intellectual side. I know the facts about Christianity. I believe that it's a great philosophy. It's great for moral guidance, but have you been born again? If you've been born again, you have a love for unbelievers. You want them to know the truth. And finally, there is here, finally only in my list, it could go much longer, but a love for believers. If this response to the truth is matched by genuine regeneration, you will have a desire to be with the people of God. A desire to be with them and to identify with their cause. Saul of Tarsus could have set up his own shop and gone his own way, but he went to Jerusalem and said, where are the brothers and sisters? I want to be with them. And he kept repeatedly trying to get in. Now, while each of these realities is nurtured, none is manufactured. These spiritual changes flow from the dynamic of genuine spiritual conversion to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They are indeed a gospel-centered life. A God of unmeasured grace, humbled by Him, repentant, a new life orientation, Christ-centered, allegiance to Jesus, an interest in the lost, an interest and a love for the believers. This is all a gospel-centered life, as Stalker has put it. Paul's whole theology is nothing but the explication of his own conversion. You look at all that Saul says and it points back to this event, to this place where he perceived the truth about Jesus and where his soul was regenerated by the Spirit of God. On that Damascus road, he learned who Jesus was. That salvation was by grace alone. He learned a faith-based righteousness and even in some sense of union with Christ and certainly learning more of that as he goes to the Arabian desert. But it all comes back to his regeneration. And so there is great history here. With courage and zeal, Saul of Tarsus will turn from everything he has gained and abandon it all in order to serve the mission of Jesus Christ but there is also here a witness to what genuine conversion is. Never does God put a ticket to heaven in our back pocket and walk away. Always, he regenerates our whole orientation, our whole life. And while we may struggle and with sin, and while we may disappoint him, there is a new way of seeing life. He'll never be the same again. Turn with me as we close to Philippians three. We see this heart in Paul the Apostle, who was converted Saul of Tarsus. We see his heart when he says, in Philippians chapter three and verse four, "I have reason for confidence in the flesh." Now, we have to think here in these terms. God chose Abraham. God chose the family of Abraham. They were uniquely elected by God as His people. So if anybody can put confidence in the flesh, I could as a member of those people. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and my name was Saul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, devout, giving my all to understand the word of God and to be faithful to him. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We don't look at that as very complimentary, but think of it in context. He will crush anything that is out of line with what he perceives to be the will of God. As to righteousness under the law, Blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. I counted it as a debit. That is, what was so important to me actually was holding me down. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things just struck me, that's not a throwaway phrase. He gave up everything that he had. All esteem, all prestige, all schooling, all opportunity, his wealth, his name, given up all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here it is. All of this I throw away and count as detrimental garbage. But I want to know Him. And the power of His resurrection that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to see Christ. Is that the cry of your regenerate heart? That I may know him. The power of his resurrection, identifying with his people and suffering with them. Conforming my life to Jesus Christ unto death. If that spirit and that heart and that purpose is in your heart, it's because you believe certain truths about Jesus. And it's because you have been regenerated by his spirit. You may have an experience that's not based on the truth of his word, it's not saving. And you may have truths in your mind that you understand, but you've never been regenerated. True repentance, true salvation, brings the two together, such that our hearts are changed to love Christ and his people in a lost world. And such that we say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also the body they may kill. I want to know Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, there may be some here who have had an experience but not saving faith in the truth revealed. There may be some who know the truth of the gospel but have never been regenerated. We can't make this happen. We can't put it up for purchase. We just ask, Father, that You would move and do what You did with Saul of Tarsus and capture souls today. There would be a dawning in the heart of those who would then reach out to You and embrace in faith the forgiveness that's in Christ through His death and resurrection. I pray for those of us who know You, Father, that it would be our passion of heart to know you at all cost, to know that you are the greatest treasure for which we would sell everything and leave everything, that we might have Christ through eternity. As our hearts cry, deepen that desire in us, I pray, as you sanctify us through your truth in the name of Christ. Amen.